Well, it's good to be with you. Today we're looking at the prophetic book of Habakkuk. We're continuing through our discussion of the latter prophets. We've covered some of the major prophets, and now we are into our minor prophets of the 7th century. Uh, last time we looked at the prophet Zephaniah, and now we are digging into Habakkuk. This is probably a book that people are not all that familiar with, but it's a significant book, and it uh, appears, quotes from the book of Habakkuk appear quite often in the New Testament. So I think there's a lot that we can get out of this book, and so it's worth our time. So let's go in. Of course, it's Bible, so it's always worth our time. But if we go into this study, let's have an overview of the book. Uh, there's not a lot known about this prophet. He doesn't have any genealogy. He doesn't say he comes from this house or that house. He doesn't tell us where he's coming from. Uh, so that's really interesting. We do believe that the date for this book falls between 630 and 586 B.C. Now that 586 time frame is significant for those that are aware. Uh, the date reflects the fall of the temple. And so there's not really a mention of the fall or the destruction of the temple in the book of Habakkuk, which probably indicates that this is written before that event occurred. Somewhere between the falling of Assyria and the growth of Babylon is, is most accurate, uh, our best guess. And so uh, if you recall, Assyria was the monster empire that destroyed the northern tribes. But over time, Babylon uh, conquers and uh, takes control of the region. And they will end up sacking Nineveh and destroying uh, Assyria and taking over. And then uh, not, not too long after that occurs, then you'll have uh, Persia and Cyrus uh, advance and take over Babylon. So um, the date is though in that period. So it, uh, we have survived one storm in the southern tribes and another storm is brewing. He's a contemporary of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, and Nahum. Now Ezekiel would be the later of this group and so he's the major prophet that we will look at after Nahum. But Ezekiel is going to be our transitional prophet who sees the destruction of the temple and begins to contemplate what's next for the people. So Habakkuk's right into that picture, and if you're reading Zephaniah as we covered last week, or if you're reading Nahum, you'll, you'll kind of understand the historical time frame that this is going on. Uh, there are three sections, which are broken for the most part by chapter. Uh, we have the dialogue and the front end, then we have the five woes, and then we have a hymn to conclude the book. So it is also broken into kind of three discourses. The first discourse is chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. It begins with a prayer uh, from Habakkuk, and it's a complaint, praying and complaining against Judah. I don't know if you ever complain to God in your prayers, but there is precedent for it in Scripture. Every now and then we are just uh, downtrodden, and, and we need to cast our cares on God, and sometimes that might come across as whining. I don't know, uh, my kids oftentimes will... Uh, without realizing it, turn into a, a whining session uh, towards me. And there's times where I'm patient with it and trying to really understand what's underneath it. And there's times where I'm fed up. Uh, and you'll see some of that in the prophetic works in, in the book of Job, where uh, we get some whining and God finally stands Job up and says, well, let's, uh, let's answer your questions, Job. And he does a similar method of responding to Habakkuk. It's, uh, we'll, we'll get into that in just a second, but it's very similar to the the structure and the, the themes of Job. Uh, the answer to the first discourse is judgment is coming through the nation of Babylon. So Judah's sins, which can be just simply read in the first four verses. How long, O Lord, will I call for your help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look at wickedness? 
Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. And the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted. And then God's response and the answer to this uh, concern of the prophet, his own nation has forsaken the things of God, you know, sounds a little familiar today, is that the judgment is going to come upon the nation and it will come from an outside nation. This is really how God tends to work throughout human history is he'll use one nation to bring judgment against another nation. And so Israel brings judgment against the Canaanite nations and uh, Egypt uh, is judged for their actions against Israel. And Assyria is judged by Babylon. Babylon is judged by Persia. They're judged by Greece, judged by Rome, and so be it. And so it, it is not uncommon, and it wouldn't be inaccurate for us to say, look at the world around us, and we can expect that our nation will be judged at some point by another nation. And sometimes God's judgment is simply allowing a nation to go the way of its own depravity. And oftentimes that's how the sins of a nation are uh, piled up to reach a point where God does bring the ultimate judgment against it. The second discourse is a prayer on God's justice. You know, God, this is going on. If you're in charge, if you're the king of the universe, if you are sovereign, then how come these terrible things are happening? Uh, he starts off with the responsibilities of the righteous, God's answer. This is what the righteous need to do. And then there's a judgment against Babylon. The very nation that God says, I'm going to use Babylon to bring the judgment in discourse one is the same nation that God is going to judge according to the answer in Discourse 2. Because even though Israel is deserving judgment, <clears throat> Babylon is still going to have to be taken to task for attacking and bringing down God's chosen people. And so, you know, it might be different if Babylon was a holy and wonderful nation, but Babylon is no such thing. And so even though judgment is guaranteed at this point for Judah, the nation that judges Judah will also be judged. And so, <clears throat> does that make you feel any better? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that Habakkuk felt any better after this, but the idea is that God's justice does win out the day. It just doesn't always look like we would like it to look. <clears throat> the third discourse is a prayer for mercy. And so you can kind of understand the shift here. God says, all right, you want to know what I'm going to do about the violence in Judah? I'm going to bring violence against Judah. And then you want to know what to do uh, about my justice. I'm going to tell you what you should do. And then I'm going to bring my justice against the nations that have uh, treated other nations poorly, including Babylon. And then there is a uh, prayer for mercy. So God, you know, you're, you're judging us. This is almost too much to bear. Please uh, give us mercy. Verses 1 through 3. Uh, we'll start at verse 2. Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. Lord, revive your works in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in the wrath. Remember mercy. God comes from Timon, from the holy mountain, the holy one from the mountain of Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. There's a prayer. Lord, don't, don't forget to be merciful when you bring your judgment. I think this is a powerful prayer. You know, Lord, have mercy. We should make this part of our regular prayers. And then finally, the acceptance. At the very end of the book, sorry, reflection on God's sovereignty. I don't want to miss that. So it's a request for mercy. It's a reflection on who God is and why we can expect mercy from God and his great power. His justice is true, whether we understand it or not. And then Habakkuk's trust in God at the end. And we'll read those verses towards the end of this lesson altogether. But Habakkuk is only three chapters. So he tries to do a very similar thing to Job, but in a much shorter period. 
the main theme of the book is the theodicy. That is a technical term that is given to how can God uh, be just when there is evil in the world? How can a good God let evil and injustice stand? And how can, why do good things happen to bad people and why do bad things happen to good people? That's the theodicy question. Uh, the, the real question in the book of Habakkuk is not so much that there's evil in the world but, and that you know God says he's going to take care of it, but the question is if justice is delayed, then is not justice denied? And so we in our short-lived lives, we see evil in the world and it really bothers us and how can God allow that to stand for any length of time? And we don't always have a full grasp of God's uh, purpose and why God lets things go on as long as they do. And so we do feel like it's a just charge to bring against God. You're, you're allowing this to go on too long. Why don't you stand up and act? What we find from other stories in the Bible, such as the uh, conquest of the promised land, is that God will oftentimes let his own people endure suffering longer as he's giving opportunity for repentance to the nation that needs to be judged. And so sometimes the evil is allowed to stand in order to offer an extended opportunity for repentance. In fact, that's what we learn in Second Peter, that the, the purpose of God's patience with our sin and with our wickedness and with our rebellion is that more might come to know who Jesus is, that, that all might come to repentance, it says. And so even though justice is delayed, what we learn from the, the whole of Scripture is that that delayed justice is not because God's denying justice. Uh, it's that God is trying to show mercy. And of course, mercy is a denial of justice in one way or another. But most of us are okay with the denial of justice if the answer is mercy. But if the answer is continued uh, evil actions on the part of the wicked, we aren't as open to that. But we have to remember that all of us at some point in time stood under the judgment of God. And we needed God to act justly for us. And we're so glad that he did in the person of Christ. But there was a waiting time before Jesus was sent. And there's a waiting time before Jesus returns. Habakkuk's answer is similar to Job. So Job, again, takes many chapters and a large story, but Habakkuk is right to the point. But God basically says, you need to be patient, you need to be humble, and trust me. And God is God, and we are not. At the end of all of the worries that we have and all the concerns that we carry, God is God, and, and you're not, and I'm not. And we have to trust that God is going to come through. So the answer to the theodicy, trust God. It is not a satisfying answer for our curious minds. It doesn't always explain to us how an omniscient God can allow bad things. Is he not powerful enough to stop it? Does he not care? The Bible says he does care. He is powerful enough to stop it. But somehow in his greater purpose, he knows how, how that evil is going to work out for the greater good. And remember Romans when he says he works out all things for good to those that love him, to those that are called according to his purpose. Another major theme that we have in the book of Habakkuk is corporate judgment. We learn that individuals will share in the punishment of their nations. This is a tragic reality that stands for the nations before God. God tends to judge nations as a whole. And because of this, what we realize is that you and I will sometimes suffer for sins that we didn't commit but we're a part of those sins by being a part of a nation. And so this is why so much in the Old Testament you see people saying, Lord, forgive me. Isaiah says, I'm a person of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That God is going to look at 
the people. You know, a nation really is an extended family. And that the judgment that he brings will often affect everybody in that extended family. And so we sometimes may be victims of God's judgment, temporal judgment on this earth, for the crimes of our nation. This is why Chronicles tells us that we need to humble ourselves and pray to heaven and ask God to heal our lands. We have to repent because we don't want to experience the judgment of our nation. And it seems to be the case that if God does bring judgment against our nation, we might be collateral damage. Now, we're so thankful that other passages of Scripture tell us that God's ultimate judgment of our lives and the lives that are lived on earth are judged individually. And the big question in that regard is, what did you do with Jesus? Did you put your trust and faith in the Anointed One? <clears throat> Theodicy, corporate judgment, and finally, the Anointed One, the Messiah. God's vindication is tied to the salvation he's bringing through the Messiah. Uh, verse 313, it says, You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. So God is going to bring an ultimate judgment to the wicked, and he's going to bring about the salvation of his people and the salvation of the Savior. And this is a, a fantastic thought because God didn't save Jesus from going to the cross, but he did rescue him from the dead. He rose Christ from the dead. And so the salvation is going to be manifested through the work of the anointed one. So we have that idea that the Messiah, it could just read that way, for the salvation of your Messiah. And that salvation could be referred to as bringing Jesus up from the dead, uh, bringing uh, salvation to the one that God has chosen, the king. Uh, and it also could be on, uh, uh, for the salvation could also be understood in uh, the idea of through the anointed. Um, so the salvation that belongs to your anointed one, that, that he essentially is carrying and delivering to us. And so depending on the language, it's a poetic song. We could take it either, either way, that uh, salvation that's brought on behalf of the Messiah or salvation that is brought through the work of the Messiah. And both of the answers are yes to that question in the work of Jesus Christ. So the judgment that's coming for the sins that are laid out are going to somehow be tied up in God's people and the Messiah. And that we need to remember that in the midst of the judgment that may be coming. So that's kind of Habakkuk in a nutshell, the major themes, the major discourses. I did want to kind of chase down a little bit of a theological question here because there is a key verse in Habakkuk that is used quite often in the New Testament. And that brings about a question as to whether or not Habakkuk uh, is used correctly in the New Testament and if Habakkuk's verse that we see in Paul uh, is a correct quotation. And of course we believe it is. But how in the world is Paul using Habakkuk 2 verse 4? And of course, that is that famous, but the just shall live by faith, shall live by faith. Paul uses this in Galatians. He says in Galatians 3 verse 11, for as many are, as are the, this is beginning at verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. This is a quote from Habakkuk to say, you can't complete the law. The goal is to live by faith. Romans 1.17, coming after that famous passage that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For if righteousness 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so the righteous shall live not by deeds, but by faith. So does Paul accurately represent that verse? Now, the author of Hebrews also utilizes the verse towards the end of chapter 10. It says, A little while he who is coming will come quickly and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. Now in the, uh, But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And so the author of Hebrews says, don't draw back. Don't draw back. <clears throat> and so live by faith. Is the New Testament's use in these passages accurate? Is uh, the book of Hebrews telling us that salvation is, is not based on works, but solely on belief? Um, the question also is, uh, the righteous one shall live by faith. Uh, Hebrews can be translated a, a few different, sorry, uh, depending on reliance on the Septuagint or on the Hebrew, there's a little nuance to how Habakkuk 2.4 reads, but uh, the righteous one by his, by his faith shall live is another uh, way of rendering this. And so who is the righteous one? Is this righteous one the one who works the law perfectly? Uh, what makes him righteous? Uh, is it because he's the perfect believer in God? This is also a big question about the Reformation. When the Protestants decided to... Uh, separate from the Catholic Church. Part of the big sticking point was Martin Luther saying, the just shall live by faith alone, was his translation. And uh, a common retort to the Protestant claim of faith alone is that uh, James tells us this very important passage in James 2.24, referring to Abraham believing God and it being counted to him as righteousness. He was the friend of God. But you see, because of what Abraham did, the man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so you have this dichotomy between Paul's use of this verse and between uh, James's use of this, of this verse. And many people will argue that this is a contradiction in the Bible, but I think we're looking at different manifestations of how faith and works uh, collide. And so going just a little further, I think a lot of this can be uh, understood better by looking at the Hebrew word for faith, and it is enuma, or emuna. Emuna can mean faith or faithfulness. And so there's not really a clear distinction between being faithful, which in our mind is being a faithful doer, and having faith, which is being faithful in believing. And so faithfulness, uh, this is a, a good definition, indicates one's own inner attitude and the conduct it produces. And I would say that this is really the way that we should understand both Paul and James. The answer is faith and faithfulness is is tied together. If we have trust in God, it will produce works. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then he goes on, you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he prepared for you to do beforehand. And so we have this idea that if you truly have faith, you will truly be faithful. And this concept is really not to be broken where works are put in contrast to faith, but rather that uh, trying to accomplish salvation through works is futile, but believing and trusting in God will produce what God wants to produce. And so I think this is a helpful way to try to understand the distinction between Paul, between James. Also, it's important in Habakkuk. Is Habakkuk talking about faithfulness in working hard or not? And I think that that answer is also more clear in verse 2 of chapter 2. It says, Then the Lord answered me, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, 
that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. If faithfulness is the translation instead of faith, that's really significant because what is Habakkuk being required to be faithful to? It is not to a work. It is not to a, an accomplishment, but rather to a vision that he's being given, something to be written down and set aside for others. And so if we look at the gospel and say, well, God has given us his message written down, and it is what we have in the scripture, our faithfulness to the scripture is a belief in the scripture, an intent belief. And even more interesting is uh, this translation This translation takes the third person pronoun and says it, referencing the vision. But if we go to Hebrews, that same passage where, um, though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. When we get to the book of Hebrews, if you recall how that third person pronoun was translated, it was pronounced not as an it, but as a he. For a little while yet, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. So the faith that Habakkuk is referring to in this vision ends up being tied up in that major theme of the anointed one. Wait for him. Though he tarry, wait for him. And by your faith, you will live. So as a Christian, we read Habakkuk on Habakkuk's term, uh, terms. We look at the vision that is to come. And that vision is tied up in the person of the Messiah, the anointed one. And so there's no conflict in Habakkuk between Paul, between James, between the Old Testament. It all comes down to, are you trusting in God's anointed one who's coming? And I think it ends with a great word of hope. I will exalt in the Lord, yet, in, in spite of all the judgment, in spite of all the things that are coming down, in spite of the fact that God will judge us, will judge the nation that judges us, and we are tied up in God's continual battle with evil, in spite of all that, yet I will exalt the Lord and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. We have cause for joy. In the midst of suffering and evil and God uh, seeming to delay judgment, we need to rejoice because he's given us a vision. He's given us a hope for the future that is tied up in the coming salvation of the Messiah. And so I hope that you're encouraged as you continue to read through scripture. I would encourage you to read the whole book of Habakkuk. Three chapters won't take you very long. But have at least a guide as you're going through. You can use these notes and see how it all fits together. Questions, hard questions asked of God. And God's answers are not always easy answers. But he is going to be there for us. And our hope is tied into his sending of the Son, Jesus Christ. God bless you. Have a wonderful night.